Welcome to GodPod. This is a podcast from St. Paul's Theological Centre based in Holy Trinity Brompton here in London. Jane Williams, Mike Lloyd and the occasional guest join me, Graham Tomlin, in discussing God, life, theology, the Bible, in fact, just about everything. Well, welcome to GodPod and here we go again. Today we have our usual crowd. We have um, Michael Lloyd. Hello. Thank you. We also have Jane Williams. Hello, yes, and we brought our own audience. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we have me, Graham Tomlin, and the audience, well, no, no, he's not an audience, cheerleader, guest, everything else, is um, Paul Weston. Hello. Hey. Hey, exactly. <laughs> and Paul, um, I must confess, Paul and I go back a long way, do we not? We do. We Too have far a, to go into in much detail, I think. Yeah, probably. we have a bit of history, but there you go. That'll, that'll get them talking. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely right. Yeah. But um, no, Paul is a very good friend, and um, uh, he is um, the Reverend Dr. Paul Weston, who is um, tutor in mission studies at Ridley Hall in Cambridge, uh, and also director of the New Begin Centre. Indeed, which um, is a new venture in um, based in Cambridge. And um, uh, Paul, tell us a bit about the New Begin Centre and um, uh, what it is and what it does and uh, what your role. <laughs> <laughs> a brief summary of his work. Um, <laughs> in we, two minutes. Yeah. <laughs> we'll just head out for coffee. Yeah, well. Yeah, <laughs> well, it's good to have you to myself there. Um, so the New Begin Centre is looking to go on engaging with the kinds of questions that Leslie Newbegin for a previous generation raised and that has to do with what it might mean as he put it to engage our culture in a missional way in other words what would it what would it mean he talked of to have a missionary encounter with what we call western culture a uh, western not western culture um <laughs> as well that being an so, yes <laughs> um so that's basically what it's about and in its kind of fledgling state, it's it's designed both to be a hub for people who want to go on taking some of those questions seriously um, and to do some research and to do some uh, master's and doctoral work in those sorts of areas. But it's also there to resource the church and it's there to be a kind of catalyst for those of us who want to go on asking those sorts of questions alongside other people. Um, tell, and tell us a bit about... Um Leslie Newbegin, because of course he was he was a missionary in India for m- most of his um, kind of ministry working life, and but then came back, didn't he, to to, to the UK yeah. later on, which gave him quite a privileged sort of insight mm. into Western culture, having been out of it for so long. And what what, what do we need to know about Leslie Leslie Newbegin? Um, well, good question. What do we need to know? Well, born nineteen hundred nine in Newcastle upon Tyne. Um, I don't know why so I said Scottish it with that accent. It's very near Scotland. It's very near Scotland. So, yes, um, studied uh, geography and economics as an undergraduate in Cambridge at Queen's. Um, was, was really converted um, whilst a student um, and changed to economics. Came from quite a socialist background, Quaker background. Uh, ended up training for the Church of Scotland uh, as a an ordained person who was at Westminster College in, in Cambridge. Um, met his wife while he was taking time out after university, and she had a missionary call, in the old sense of that word. Uh, so Newbegin went with her to India in 1936 and spent most of his ministry there. He had a kind of brief interlude where he was seconded to the World Council of Churches, 
in the early 60s. He was the founder, one of the founding bishops of the United Church of South India uh, in 1947. Um, and then came back, uh, and then after the Sakoma became bishop of Madras, as it was, Chennai as it is now. Um, and then retired in 1974 and backpacked, literally, back to Europe from Madras with Helen and a couple of rucksacks. How old were they then? Um, 65. Wow. Pretty impressive. So they made their way across India. They went through Afghanistan, Iran, uh, down through Asia Minor, as was, mm. and then across Europe. And he has this kind of intriguing reference in his autobiography that, it, that culture shock really hit him at five o'clock in the morning when they got to Munich station uh, without going into much detail. I mean, he was a, he was a kind of <clears throat> a bit of a global traveler with his WCC work. So he was very, very active and very well-traveled. Um, but actually on the way back, he, every Sunday, he used to try and meet up with the local Christians to worship together. And the only place he couldn't find anybody to worship with uh, was Cappadocia. And it had a profound kind of impact on him in the sense that he came to terms with the fact that a place which was once so influential could completely lose yeah. any connection with the Christian faith. So that that made him think. And then he got back to England. And yes, from, uh, well, really from the early 80s onwards, uh, there was a publication in 1983 called The Other Side of 1984. He began to reflect on what it what it meant to come back, having done the cross-cultural thing going the other way now to come back to England and to ask some sort of cross-cultural questions about Western culture um, and thereby came to write another 16 books I think and about 170 articles and shorter pieces um, and and became a kind of I think a catalyst for yeah a generation of people who who had got to the point where they increasingly felt they were being overtaken by a culture that they couldn't really understand or or come to terms with and he was new beginning coming back uh from another culture and from experience of a number of cultures and asking the sort of the reverse missionary question but you know on the lips of a white white theologian did you did you know him at all i i did towards the end of his life no i got to i was doing a a, a research play uh m phil in an august establishment called wycliffe hall Ah, yes, I've um, heard that. Have you? Yes. Yes, yes. Wycliffe Hall. Wycliffe Michael Lloyd, principal yes. of, is present. <laughs> Thank um, you. Plug, 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 gratefully plug. received. And I suppose, I mean, that actually takes us back to our beginnings, as it were. We were trying to communicate something of the good news to people in the city mm. using arts and music and so on and so forth. That is a reference to Paul and my history, where we did a job together in the city of London. Trying to, um, yeah, communicate Christian faith back in about 1980. Yeah. It was a pre-fresh city workers. Fresh, fresh expression, wasn't it? Yeah, right, yes, exactly. Um, How successful would you say you were in the light of uh, subsequent history? <laughs> yes, well... There were ones and twos, weren't there? Yeah, there were. We had, a, we were. had fun, we enjoyed ourselves. Oh, we had a great time. We had a great time. Um, but anyway, yes, that, so that, I mean, the question of how you communicate the faith was something which was really uppermost in my mind. And and coming across Leslie's stuff, I can't remember actually what it was. I think it was probably Foolishness to the Greeks. Um, I think for the first time I read somebody who I thought, actually, this guy's scratching where I'm wanting to scratch. And uh, I think from that moment on, he became a kind of subconscious uh, conversation partner. I finished my MPhil as an MPhil. 
<clears throat> and eventually did my PhD at King's through with Andrew Walker. Um, and I said to Andrew after we'd first met, I said, I want to do something on New Begin. I said, what should I do about that? And he said, well, why don't you give him a ring and go and talk to him? So I went back to where I was in North London, opened the phone book, and there was New Begin with a 1G and Leslie with double S. And I thought, well, there can't be that many Leslie Newbegins, Leslie and Helen, and I knew his wife was called Helen. So I found myself ringing him. Um, and uh, I said, um, you know, I'm, I th I'm thinking you're doing a PhD on something that might interest you. And he said, what's that? And I said, you. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, there was a kind of short pause. And I suddenly realized what I'd said. Um, and then he said, well, I can't, I can't do his accent, but a wiry accent, sort of very sinewy voice. He said, well, I, I, I do seem to have had a passing interest in myself. <laughs> um, why don't you come and talk about it? <clears throat> so I cancelled everything the following day and went down and talked to him. And that, and that sort of began to open things up. He, by that stage, so this is early 90s, if not late 80s, um, was almost completely blind. So he had a team and I, I also read to him. Um, and I used to play a game with him, spot the philosopher or spot the theologian. And I'd go and read to him and see whether he could pick it up and so on. But that, that was the start of it. And then I met, I, yeah, I went on meeting with him and talking with him. So, yeah, very privileged. And did your um, PhD in, um, sort of focus on um, his challenge to old patterns of what constitutes mission? Or was it really the culture thing? I know the two are related. Was it really mm. the culture thing? that I took, I mean, it, it took me a little while, to, as I, I suppose my, nearly all PhDs do, to work out what the line of attack was going to be. Uh, and I read Michael Polanyi's book, Personal Knowledge, which I think, for me, I mean, if I was on a desert island and I had to pick a non-theological book, which had most influenced me, it would certainly be Michael Polanyi's Personal Knowledge. I think it's an extraordinary book. Um, and then talking with Leslie and then reading his stuff again, suddenly realized what an enormous, well, I, I'm tempted to say influence. I don't think it influenced him to do things that he didn't want to do. But I think it gave him a, a set of metaphors. It gave him a form of language to express, quite pictorially actually, what it was that he was on about. And so Polanyi came a kind of, became a very a silent ally to, ally to New Begin. So my PhD focused on the influence that Polanyi had on Newbegin between sort of modernity and post-modernity. So it, it, it gets a little messily epistemological, it's, you know, how, how we know things, how we know that things are true and so on and so forth. So that was the angle I came in on um, and, and basically argued that whereas I think some mission responses are very tied to the culture of which they're a part, so that when that culture changes, you either get marooned or... Um, you know, you have to rethink everything. Whereas Newbegin actually in both the modernity and post-modernity actually seems to plough the same line, which could, of course, suggest that he's completely out of touch with either of them or that he's onto something which is slightly more solid and central. And I think in that regard, I think, I think um, Newbegin's influence under Bart, actually his late influence, he didn't understand him to begin with, this idea that you, you can't defend the gospel from any other starting point than its own starting point, which is the resurrection of, or the, you know, the, the, the revelation of God in Jesus Christ, becomes that thing through which you see everything. Um, so Polanyi is very interesting on that. I, don't, I mean, it's an open question, I think, whether Polanyi was ever a uh, confessional believer. I'm not sure he was. But he nonetheless gave Newbegin that insight into the nature of what Polanyi called personal knowledge, which 
actually enabled him, I think, to critique um, both modernity and also aspects of postmodernity. Do you think so um, that's what it was on? I mean, New Begin's sort of unique background in, in sort of having come from Western culture, gone to India, immersed himself in that culture, then returning to Western culture almost as an outsider, but an insider at the same time. Did that give him a, a kind of privileged position to see that? Um, and I suppose the, the other part of that question is, is, is you know, how possible is it to understand one's own culture from within? Um, because you can see how, you know, objectively you can understand a culture from outside, sometimes better than you can inside it. Uh, but then what does that say to those of us who are trying to do mission within a particular culture and don't have the privilege of having seen it from outside? How do you, how do you kind of negotiate yeah. that? Yeah, that's one of the big questions, which I was going to ask you, actually, Graham. But anyway, um, <laughs> I got yeah. in there first. Yeah, you did. Um, I think there's there are elements in Newbegin's story where he was jolted into thinking differently, where the kind of uh, if you know what if you want to find out what bus you're on, get off and look at the number. You know, so there are certain occasions on Newbegin's life where this this kind of getting off the bus happens, and one of the very early ones was going to the Ramakrishna mission uh, in. Eastern India when he arrived in 36 and and finding this kind of panoply of gods around the wall and um, being invited basically to put Jesus in amongst them you know with great respect but no sense of finality no sense well actually for Newbegin no sense that all the theological training that he had been given in the kind of broadly rational liberal method enabled him to to actually tell the story of Jesus, they didn't. They didn't relate to um, his kind of methodology and any of that, and that for him was a rude shock. So he he developed what appears on the outside to be a very simple thing, and and but stuck to it right the way through. Which is that actually, if you're going to communicate something, you've probably got to get off a philosophical high court, high horse and say, well, I can I can back this myself, and uh, and as he puts it, allow the story to do its own work. So his. Um, I think his discovery of the narrative power of the gospel as recorded scripturally becomes a kind of mainstay of where he's coming from. So he talks about just telling the story of Jesus and allowing, if you like, allowing God to do the verification stuff that perhaps certain forms of liberalism were tempted to think that was our role. You know, we push truth, we prove truth and so on and so forth. So I think that was true. Um, and how, how seriously does he take culture? Because, of course, Bart in some senses, doesn't think culture is that important um, in terms of mission. The focus is very much upon the word. Culture is a medium, but but, but not in any way revelatory or not, in, not, not particularly significant. And, yeah. Exactly, that's right. So does Newbegin take the same approach, or does he think culture is more significant um, theologically? Than no, that? he doesn't quite. I mean, I suppose you could call him a neo-Bartin. I mean, Bart only came into Newbegin's repertoire when um, he came back from India in 1974. So he'd met Bart at a number of missionary conferences during the 20th century and found him quite an amusing and quirky sort of character. There's one story of finding him in the middle of a lawn at Bossy trying to gather the papers together from a whole range of discussions. And um, and Bart was muttering as the new begin passed, you know, what we really need here is a great world-class ecumenical theologian. You know, uh, <laughs> new begin sort of found this really quite witty and funny, but Bart obviously was very, very, I don't know, either conscious that he wasn't that person or whatever. So I think there was a kind of quirkiness 
Um, but when he came back, he read, he set himself, uh, Newbegin, when he came back to England in 74, set himself to read the Church Dogmatics from start to finish. Um, oh, except that he didn't read it from start to finish. He was a great detective story reader. So he started at the far end and then worked his way back, oh, backwards. Um, which, and then discovered that it might have saved him a lot of time if he'd started at the end of volume two. I found a detective novel yeah. doesn't like the element of surprise. No. <laughs> yes. No. That's right. Yes. So anyway, to answer the question, yes, I think he was influenced by Bart, but I don't think it was in that kind of culture denying sense. So, um, yeah, there's there's some interesting kind of yes but no's about Newbegin's appreciation I, I, of Bart. I find myself very ambivalent, I think, about <clears throat> Newbegin's view of um, how you can't defend the ultimate with anything other than itself. And therefore, you start from the resurrection and you can't give any other reasons for it. And therefore, you tell the story. And, and at one level, I, I see the point of that. And at another level, I think, and yet, you must be able to give an account of the rationality of what you believe. Uh, you must, if you are basing everything upon a claimed historical event like the resurrection, you've got to be able to suggest that it has some plausibility uh, so how do, how does he does he just not want to do, to be forced into that, not want to answer that question, or what would he have made of people who look at the historicity of the resurrection? Uh, you know, something like Tom Wright's Resurrection of the Son of God. Yeah. What would New going to make? Oh, I don't think he would have had a problem with that at all. Uh, it wouldn't have had a problem with that at all. I think he was wary of the kind of philosophizing that kept you in second order territory as it were mm -hmm. you know that never got you to the truth of the yeah. gospel as he right. understood it okay. but that 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 is indefensible from any other viewpoint ultimately i think he would have said yes but i think the interesting thing for him is that one of the things that happens at conversion is the paradigm shift in our own sense of our own rationality that the things which we thought were foolish then become wise yes. and the things that we thought were wise become foolish um and that that paradigm shift is central to the way in which he thinks about things. So I think his apologetics, whilst, yes, uh, very, very um, connected in that sense of finding that common ground, ultimately is also wanting to say there isn't a common ground at this point. So that, to that extent, I think Bart does come into the picture for Nubian. But the reason why the foolish things are wise and the wise things are foolish is because of what the resurrection says about the cross, isn't it? Uh, it's because this person who died a slave's death and came to an ignominious end, was raised, the one human being ahead of the end of time, says that what we thought of as shameful and, and uh, fa a failure was in fact central to everything. Now, you've got to say something about the event that changes your mind on that, which is the resurrection. But in, that, in the context of where Paul is talking about that, it's also the Christian community isn't it because he's saying look at us we're not anybody's idea of a an elite force yes. this is uh, apostle paul not this paul not, not, not this paul though i'm sure they're closely <laughs> alive but uh, saint paul, saint paul. <laughs> yes, paul this paul has not been canonized yet yet <laughs> yeah um uh, and so the, i mean that's the other place where truth becomes um narrative rather than just 
propositional. Isn't Narrative it, isn't? and sociology and yes, everything. Yes. Yes. I, 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 mean, I think I have some sympathy for Newbegin's approach on this because it seems to me that re- the resurrection is is such a big thing that you kind of either have to you either believe it or you don't and if you do believe it it changes everything and therefore you have to begin to you know you look at you know what paul is doing apostle paul in 1 corinthians 1 and 2 is saying yes the cross looks very different in the light of the resurrection but everything looks very different in the light of the resurrection and it's in christian faith in a in a way is an act of looking at the world through the light of this central fact of resurrection which brings hope rather than despair and in some ways what you have to do is you place yourself in you know in in the position from which you can look at the world through the lens of resurrection as it were and see how it looks differently i i entirely agree with that and and part of the sanity of how it then looks and the humanizing sanity yeah. of how it then looks is is part of uh, the appeal that we make to people and as Jane says the community in its different valuing and different um, composition composition is, is part of that case as well but part of what the resurrection also says is that history matters because it's the the, the field into which God has entered and acted um, and therefore its own history must matter <laughs> And its own historicity must matter. There must be a degree of historical commitment because the resurrection itself is about God entering into affirming and and transforming um, the historical Which is why we tell this story rather than any other. Well, exactly, yes. I think, I mean, I think it's a really interesting area for Newbegin because, I mean, we've talked about Bart a little bit. I think if you'd asked him what his early hero or who his early hero would have been, he would have said Emil Brunner, which is quite interesting in terms of, you know, the the direction from which he was traveling and the place to which he got. I think it's kind of slightly unworked through in the end. Mm -hmm. Um, There's a certain presuppositionalism about his apologetics. By which you mean? By which I mean he would always push you logically on the basis of what you're saying to the conclusions that you then come to about purpose, about meaning. About Until existence. you're very uncomfortable with those Until you're very uncomfortable about conclusions. Yeah. yeah. So his his summons at that level is to say, come over and look at it from this point of view. You know, in one sense it's to say to suspend disbelief. But it's also to take your viewpoint or the other person's viewpoint very, very seriously. Um, actually I mean in the Hindu context, not to talk about history is actually, a, in one sense, a bigger denial because, of course, with a cyclical sense of what life is all about, the, the uniqueness of Jesus as the clue to history, as Newbegin came to call him, means that you must anchor him, yes, within history, yes. must anchor him within history. But it seems to me that there are, well, this is me, not Newbegin, nor the Apostle Paul, um, it seems to me that there are ways in which we sometimes compartmentalize those different approaches in a quite an unhelpful way. I think for Newbegin, he would say, my ultimate goal is clear. I want to bring people under the, the sound, the truth of the resurrection. How I get there is actually often quite a sort of, um, I'm maybe riding two, three, four horses at the same time, but I'm aware of what I'm, where I'm trying to get to, I suppose. I think that's the kind of um, thing which I found challenging, impressive about him. Um, so I think it's interesting that the, the kind of um, modernist apologetics, I think, then finds a place in Newbegin's thought, which is often post-paradigm shift. 
In other words, let's let's discover what this really means in terms of how the world really works. And of course, there again, there are bridges to those who've not yet come to faith. But I I I find that kind of that's quite a rude shock, you know, in a very still I think a culture that lives under the shadow of the Enlightenment in many ways. That's that's an interesting approach. So, are you um, recommending, Paul, that we um, go on reading Newbigin? for his answers to the questions that he raised or for the questions that he raised? I think very much for the questions. So I, I tell my students quite unashamedly, I'm, I'm not sure that you know, I know the answers or for that matter new begin in this context, but I think one of his abiding values is that he, he actually puts the questions so well. And that's in, it's interesting when that stuff first came, started to come out, how people use the expression, use the kind of language that said, you know, we've been straining towards these kinds of questions, but actually you've put them in a way which we so recognise. So give us some examples of some of those questions. Well, I think if you take, I mean, the thing that we started off, what would it mean to have a missionary encounter with the culture that we live in, in terms of its own values, uh, its own, what it, what it feels is important and so on, in terms of identity, in terms of purpose? What would it mean to have a missionary encounter with that kind of culture, the lived-in culture that we inhabit? Uh I think is as prescient today as it was when he first spoke it. Um, and there are a whole range of um, questions like that. You know, what is, what is the clue to my identity? What is the clue to the meaning? It, can, I, can I come to a, a satisfactory understanding of who I am without invoking some sense of purpose? Um, I, I think those questions are great because I think, and, and that's more at an apologetic individualist level. But I mean, in terms of the church as a as an embodied whole, uh, he asked some very prescient and uncomfortable questions. I think about denominationalism, about um, the proper grasp of um, the oneness or the unity of the church and the gospel. You know, I mean, for New Begin, that wasn't a kind of institutional nicety. It was, if I can't get on with other Christians, that means I don't really believe the gospel. And something he tried to live out in the context of Saturday. Absolutely, yeah. Uh, uh, institutionally mean, as well as yes, absolutely. else. By the creation absolutely. of the Church of South yes, India. Yes, yeah. Indeed. Which he was and I think, involved. I think going towards the end of his life, I think that was one of the biggest... I think the thing which he felt most pain over was the fact that the Church more broadly hadn't really taken that to heart. I was baptised into the Church of South India. My Were father... You? Was a, my parents indeed were missionaries in South India, and um, Leslie Newbigin was one of their great heroes. But I remember coming home on leave as a, as a child, um, to and going to church on a Sunday in a, a church in in England, and seeing in the notice members of uh, in the porch a notice saying members of the Church of South India are not welcome in this church, and I thought why? But it was because there, there were that, all the debates about whether it was valid ordination and so on, valid sacraments within the Church of South India, which just gave me a little sense of. Um, the, the the frustration of um, of somebody like Newbigin, um encountering that lack of understanding of how important church unity actually is. Yes. One um, theme that um, struck me in Newbegin's writing was was, and you mentioned it just a moment ago, was this theme of purpose, which seems to be quite a key thing for him in his encounter with with Western culture, which it's, 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 it seems. Um, that he he came back and found a culture which had lost lost any sense of the purpose of things or the purpose of people or the purpose of, of anything really, and um, that seemed to be one of the key themes that that this sort of teleology, this idea that you can't really understand a person until you know what purpose they were made for. Just like you 
you know, you can't understand a violin unless you realise it was made for to produce beautiful music. And um, uh, and that seemed to be, you know, at the heart of his kind of critique encounter with Western culture was that was this idea of purpose. Is that right? Is that is that a kind of crucial idea for him? Or is yeah, that- I think it's very central for him. So he uses the idea of finding a, I think it's finding a watch in a desert. And you'd th- and 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 then he asks the question, what? How would you know whether it was a good piece of machinery or not? Um, and you could answer that question on a number of different levels, including the scientific. You know, do, do the actual mechanical parts work properly, or the digital parts work properly? But um, then he would pull out from that and say, well, actually, we only know whether it's doing what it's supposed to do if we know what it's supposed to do. Um, so I think that is central to his critique of modernity, or more specifically, the Enlightenment. That we became, we become actually creatures of a very utilitarian way of thinking about life. You know that life actually is not teleological. It's if it's anything, it's about finding um, escape from that. Those sorts of questions in the present and so on. So yes, that is quite key, I think, to his thinking. I wouldn't have said that was the major thing, but it's a very powerful line of argument. What is the major thing? I think you'd probably have to say it was the. Um, the epistemological, the kind of that that impasse that modernity had got into, whereby it had decided, I'm personalising it, um, it had decided how it would weigh varying truth claims. You know, so the, those things which could be demonstrated as true uh, represented those things which were worth knowing, and all that didn't measure up to that bar. It simply couldn't be called that. It could be called anything. I mean, it could be called opinion, it could be called preference, it could be called um, emotion or whatever it is. But I mean, I think that critique really, and I, I would say that I think we still live in a culture where there is that kind of, I think there's that tension amongst people that feel that if something is really true, it ought to be demonstrable. And yet live out intuitions, which they at another level know to be true but can't tell why they're true. And I think that's why, coming back to Palanyi, this idea of the intuiting of what reality is about, to which other things come as supporting arguments, but actually we act a lot of our lives on the basis that some some things are true, but we don't apply the same criteria to them. So, he, he yeah, that would, I think, be that. And, and actually some of those intuitions are less... They're more fundamental and less likely to be changed than the nearest, the latest scientific theory or, or historical fact. I mean, the fact that love is what makes the difference between existing and living, you can't prove that. But actually, I know that more certainly than I know the date of the Battle of Hastings because a new document might turn up that says it was 1087 or something. Whereas nothing's going to turn up that's going to shake one's view that, that love is... And presumably the same is true relating to our earlier discussion about the resurrection in that it strikes me, you know, that I don't think the reason I believe in the resurrection is ultimately because I've somehow proved it historically. Now, I think I can give good reasons for why it is certainly plausible. It's the best explanation of what evidence is there. But in a sense, by its very nature, I don't think I can prove it historically because it's, it is a historical event, but it is the breaking into history of something which is ahistorical. It's something kind of outside history sort of coming in. So it seems to me I can give reasons for it, but, um, but actually its plausibility is, for me as a Christian, I think is not just because I can prove it historically, but because actually the world looked at through the lens of the resurrection 
just looks a hopeful place. It looks a better place. It looks a place that makes more sense. It's a, it, it, all kind of things fit into place when you see it through that lens, which maybe begins to answer our question about sort of evidence and historicity as well, that yes, there is some supporting evidence for it, as there are for our intuitions, but we don't ultimately base our faith in the historical evidence we actually and it's, it's actually kind of looking at the world through this 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 lens now if there was historical evidence against it that would be a big problem so this you know resurrection is historically you know um you know one could disprove it as it were but the reasons we believe it are not just the historical ones is that right no i think that i think that is right although I knew I th- there was an in, in a, in a way <laughs> in a way i think that points out the importance of the historical questions because Otherwise, the danger of self-deception. It, it, I want to believe this because it will make the world look more hopeful. Um, there are some dangers in that. It's the difference between utilitarian and teleological again, isn't it? Which I found a very interesting distinction because a lot of people think utilitarian is talking about what something is for. You know what it's for because this is what you do with it. This is what it does. Um, uh, and, um, and teleological is something about purpose in a slightly different kind of way I, I find that a really i had never thought that distinction through before but you're right this is a, a utilitarian culture without any purpose <laughs> and i i wonder whether you know i mean we were talking before we started about you know what new Begin would be saying today i i think one of the interesting things is that we do still live in this kind of under this modernist shadow but the re-emergence of faith is the new reality, I think, which actually opens up an, a fresh tension within Western culture that on the one hand, you can't talk about this stuff. But on the other hand, we're dying to talk about it. In fact, we're increasingly having to talk about it because of various forms of fundamentalism and so on and so forth. Faith is not something which modernity has stamped out. It hasn't disappeared. It's come back with a vengeance. And there's a renewed, I think, culture, which uh, tension within our culture, which I think Newbegin would have addressed with... With, with well, not with glee, but I mean with great sense of optimism. And it is one of those interesting facts, isn't it, that modernity can't quite handle because it ought to have been able to stamp out faith once once it was proved that faith didn't belong in that description of truth. Then people ought to have given up on it. And uh, it's very an- annoying for, <laughs> for people from a particular cultural yeah. mindset that, that it, it does keep springing up all over the place. Yes, and I think then... I mean, I think Newbegin's stuff on the gospel is public truth. Yeah. You know, the publicness of the truth of the gospel, as in Jesus crucified, so on and so forth, is is something which I think is is of increasing relevance uh, and continuing relevance in our culture. And what does it mean to say that? What is the public square and whose voices are legitimate within it, and so on? And that was a big thing for Newbegin, wasn't it? it? Was he was kind of opposed to that kind of pietism that that simply had Christian faith as a sort of private option. This was public truth for him, and and in, in some ways, the Gospel is public truth. Was a book that that said that in in a way that was quite unique at the time, I think. And yeah, I think that's right. I mean, that's uh, we as part of the Newbegin Centre, we run this uh, summer institute, and that's our theme this summer. Um, little plug there. Very good. Come have a look on the Ridden website. I thought it's seamless. It was segued into that beautifully. Um, So the gospel is public truth. I think in one sense, it is that kind of paradigmatic idea that allows much of what Newbegin was saying to cohere. You know, what I think we're living in an increasingly, um, well, this tension shows itself in the public sphere, doesn't it? An increasingly secularist sphere in which actually faith is not a voice that you can, or the voice of faith, whatever that faith is, is not one that we want to hear in the public realm. 
you know, for us as Anglicans, that's a particular uh, challenge. I think Newbegin's really good on this. Uh, I think for him, democracy is in and of itself a Christian expression of society. You know, this idea that uh, he always used to say towards the end of his life, you know, what was the last public thing that Jesus did? And you're always tempted to think, oh, it's the resurrection, obviously. Um, and he'd say, well, actually, that wasn't public, was it? It wasn't public in the sense that the world saw it. I mean, the, only, the last public thing that, that Jesus did was to die on a cross, to make himself and God vulnerable in a public way. Um, and, of course, you know, throughout the New Testament, the strain, why didn't Jesus talk about judgment? Why didn't he bring judgment at Nazareth in that manifesto? Why didn't he talk about that? He should have done. And the disciples were always tempted to think, you know, shall we call God's judgment down on the Samaritans right now? So you've got this kind of spreading out, this, uh, I like to call it space, in which there is room for disagreement. And that's at the heart of democracy. You know, I, I think that's a... In one sense, the judgment of God is is active, but it's not fully revealed at this point. And we live in that in-between where we are called to be generous, to love our neighbors, to allow people to speak, to offer the gospel and so on and so forth. So I think I think that stuff in Newbegin is very well thought out and very kind of, um, yeah, very coherent and very challenging, I think, for us. And ties in quite well with the, the work that he did on um the nature of the missionary people um because that kind of generosity um and willingness to hear other opinions is is, is it forms you as a character doesn't it and he did quite I, I, that's where i use his writings most is actually looking at uh, forming christian leaders christian congregations yes. christian people yes and there's something i mean we, i mean many things we've talked about today have been quite in one sense, individualistic, and we've mentioned the congregation. I mean, Newbegin was very community conscious. I mean, I think it was interesting that his stuff was recommended at the beginning of the decade of evangelism, and evangelism is often thought of as a very individualistic enterprise, and yet the gospel in a pluralist society, which is one of the two texts recommended by the Board of Mission, is about the communitarian nature of the witness of the gospel, That and Newbegin's phrase that you know, how are we going to show that this ridiculous message makes sense? There ain't no way you can do it. You can't do it except in the life of a group of people who know it and believe it and live it. So he called there about, you know, the, the, the congregation is the hermeneutic of the gospel. It's the way the good news of Jesus becomes interpreted and accessible. I love that language. Um, and also it's his, his emphasis on the, is the household of God, wasn't it, on on um, the church as... Yes, you know, he emphasizes the, the kind of Protestant emphasis on the on the word, the Catholic emphasis on the presence of Christ, but also the charismatic dimension of the, the spirit, which again, I think it was in the 1950s it was written, was quite a new thing to say, actually, that the Pentecostal, the charismatic dimension was a crucial part of, of ecclesiology and actually was added to and filled out the Protestant and Catholic emphases as well, which again was a quite a perceptive thing to say at that point. Yeah. And and without much evidence when yeah, it first came out, exactly. Yeah. I mean, it was I mean, a looking back now, you think comment. It's a you think, actually that seems really, really, you know, in some ways yeah. obvious. But at the time, it was quite. And new. I think too, the Trinitarian stuff is 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 very very prescient. I mean, Visit Hooft at WCC didn't want to publish that book, the Trinitarian Basis for Mission, which came out. I mean, Newbegin had it privately published in 1963, because the organisation that he worked for wouldn't have it published. So now, 
you know, I mean, for all good reasons and lots of good reasons, although some of them I don't think are very well thought through, but anyway, that's another question. You know, Trinitarianism is almost the kind of given, whereas 55 years ago it wasn't the case by any stretch. So, um, Paul, if someone wanted to start reading New Begin, mm. um, where should they start? What's the book they should pick up? To they should with? start with my reader. Um, of course, <laughs> published in 2006. By you, you have one reader, do you, Paul? <laughs> yes, when I, it was reviewed by somebody. It said, Leslie Newgood, missionary theologian, a reader. And somebody reviewed the book, I think in what, some of the church press, being, they thought that a reader, whoever A was, um, <laughs> it, was know, it, was it was like Alan author. Reader or <laughs> Anne Reader had okay. done a good job. Mm. Um, so that would be a good place. Um, I think and in terms come and do of a course with you at the Leslie Newbigin Centre. Yes, um, come, and, come and talk and, and come to the Institute in the summer. Um, I, think, I think I wouldn't start with the Gospel in a Pluralist Society. I'd probably start with Foolishness to the Greeks or Proper Confidence, I think, is an absolute gem of a little book. Um, and then I'd, I'd put, put, I think, the Gospel in a Pluralist Society is just above the ice line mountaineering speak you know it's kind of that's when you need to get your crampons on and start get your ice axe out get, get your ice axe out um so yes okay. probably foolishness to the greeks but the reader Great. is designed to allow you to get in so yep. there are lots of different facets okay. to new begins work and if you well, want to more. find out more about the new begin center just to google that yeah and google find that your way um it. google that in and cambridge is um where we are and ridley hall is where it is so if you look up Newbegin Ridley or Newbegin Western you'll you'll get there very good well Paul thank you very much for joining us today it's been fascinating to talk about Leslie Newbegin and um, we also by the way also just so you know we've been eating well we haven't been eating during the thing but we eat quite a lot before I say Graham Tomlin's been sniffing marshmallows that's what's yeah I was actually (laughs) I must confess um, there is a rather fine collection of foods again it's the remainder of what was sent to us by Mark Morris Mm. who was a Godpod fan in the United States. Mm. And we're still working his way through ginger fudge, chocolate fudge. What are these things called? Yeah. So he's, 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 he's our one, one listener, like you've got one reader for. <laughs> yes, that's right. Yeah. yeah, I have here a ginger and raspberry marshmallows, would you believe? That's what I was sniffing earlier on. I'm very sorry, listeners, that you cannot share this particular feast. And we can't even sort of Does give this not the aroma in, through. Um, this doesn't go out in 4D then. Afraid not. That's right. With smell and everything else. We should have some sort of deal where you get the things we've been eating and a copy of one of each of our books for for a large sum of money. And this is the bit where you speak over the kind of really nice jazz music. Uh, I think I do towards the end, but that's coming. You have to wait for that for a moment. Is that pre recorded, though, Mitt? Shh, don't tell anyone. I'm not sure I could do it. With a straight face. No, 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 don't. There's <laughs> secrets out here, no? Right. right before this gets any further. <laughs> yes. Um, well, we've reached the end of this God Pod. So, um, um, Paul, thank you very much for joining us. And it's very nice to have you with us again, Michael. And, and likewise. And Jane. Thank you. And me. And um, we will be back again before too long. That was God Pod, a podcast from the St. Paul's Theological Centre. If you want to send us a question, just email it to godpod at htb.org.uk. We can't promise to answer all the questions you send in, but we'll certainly try. Until next time, goodbye.